Almighty Father, you who have been moving and working since before time began, we honor you today. There's so much we don't know, Lord. There's so much that can worry us, hinder us, distract us, confuse us. There's so much that if we're honest and when we come to you, we feel that tug, we feel that pull, we know we've got to be honest because you're honest. You're, you're not just true, you are truth itself. If we're honest, there's so much that we're guilty of, that we feel shame about. But then we hear your word. We hear you saying, let's settle the matter. Though your sins be like scarlet, I'll make them white as wool, as snow. I'll make you clean. I'll make you whole. We desire that, Lord. You've already done it through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, may we receive it in every aspect of our lives. May we believe it and build our lives upon it. Help us to hear through your word today, your message to the church. Help us, Lord, to hear from you. Amen. I want to talk with you today about the faith of Abraham. Romans chapter 4, the faith of Abraham. But as we come to that material, I want to take some time to review where we've been. Now, if you've been part of this series... Don't just uh, go to sleep here. I need you to be awake and alert and engaged, okay? The reason why we're going over this material is because, as I've mentioned before in previous uh, previous messages of this series, this is a very dense text. That is to say, there's a lot packed into it, which is wonderful. You know, it's like getting this, have you ever had paella? You know, or, or, or some wonderful dish that's just got every glorious thing loaded into it, right? It's just full of features and meats and, and seasonings and colors. And, but there's so much there that it could, it could overwhelm you. And I want you and I to be able to actually digest what God is offering to us here. And so that's why we're going over things. Uh, and, and it's sort of like taking that bite over and over and getting more and more of the nutrient of what God is offering to us in this extraordinary letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans. Also, if you're just joining us today, it's an opportunity for you to get some of these ideas for the first time. But I'm going to be moving quickly, and you might think, well, that's just too much for me. It's a reminder, online you can find my outline for today's teaching in our bulletin. You can also find the teaching slides. And you can go back and listen to prior messages or you can look at the teaching slides from prior messages. So I'm really endeavoring to teach in this series. A Sunday morning service is intended to be a point of inspiration, but it's also intended to be a point of education. And that's what my goal is by the Lord in this. In other words, I believe the Lord has called us to really learn deeply in this season. And so that means that it involves a bit of engagement from you and I. And I find that I learn well when I look at the same things over and over again because it helps me to learn them better. And so let's take a look back at some of the essential aspects overarching this letter of Paul to the Romans that we've been studying over the last several weeks. One thing is that Rome's experience is actually, I believe, I would argue, 
of particular interest to Paul in writing. Now, this is something that you might not see in the text itself, but what I'm looking at is context. That is the reality surrounding the text. We have a pretty good idea of precisely when Paul wrote this letter, which is at least uh, there's large agreement that it is written in the mid-50s AD. In other words, right in the dead center of the first century AD. It's written, therefore, about 20 to 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul, this extraordinary expert on the Jewish law, himself born into the ethnicity of Jew, uh, as a Jewish man and raised and reared and trained in the, uh, in the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish traditions, was a man who was utterly opposed to the message of Christ. He thought that Christ was a heretic he thought that God's call on him was to see every Christian put to death. And remember that in these decades, every Christian was a Jew because Christianity began in Judaism. Jesus Christ himself is a Jew and Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So Paul thought that his call from God was to arrest and, and, and often execute heretics among Judaism, which is what he saw Christians to be until Paul had an encounter. So not only is Rome's experience uh, of interest, but Paul's experience is of interest to us. Paul's experience was that in the midst of what he thought was his mission from God, the resurrected Christ called out to him. It's a story you can find in the book of Acts. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a personal encounter with Jesus, and Jesus basically told him, Paul, you've got it wrong. His name also is Saul. It's just two ways of saying the same name in different languages. And Saul, on the road to Damascus, heard the call that made him into the one that you and I know as the Apostle Paul. Apostle means that he has been commissioned. He's a commissioner of God. He has a mission in relationship with the mission of God. And that mission is to fulfill the call of God, which is to share the good news. So God's call on Paul's life is to send Paul to all the world with a message, not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles. In other words, for all people, for all nations. And the message is this. Though you and I, as human beings, have been separated from God by our sin, God has made a way for us to be reconnected in peace with him, in wholeness with him, and in his holiness. And what Paul knows is the people in Rome have the need of hearing that message. They have the need of understanding who God is, what God wants, and what God's doing. He also knows that Rome has a unique experience. So in the mid-centuries of the first, or the mid-decades of the first century AD, Rome actually had a, uh, a, a unique edict, that is a law that was pronounced by the Roman emperor at the time. Of course, Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, which was the dominant superpower of the world, or at least certainly of the Western world at that time. And the emperor, a man named Claudius, made an edict that Jewish people were expelled from the city of Rome, somewhere between 45 to 50 AD, most likely. What had happened? Well, it was probably, more than anything, a reflection of prejudice and anti-Semitism in the Roman Empire against the Jewish people. But also, it was because the Jewish people were so very distinctly different from others in the Roman 
culture. They had a, a single God. That was a novelty at the time. Almost everyone worshipped many, many gods. Jews worshipped one God. Almost everyone had gods that were gods in a kind of a lowercase g way. They, they were gods over a certain aspect or a certain feature. But the gods that the Jews declared, the God that the Jews declared, I should say, is the creator, God of everyone. And they said, this God is everyone's God. This God will not allow worship of any other God. This God is the God from whom we all come. And so this made the Jewish people unique, and it made them a point of, uh, of prejudice and of uh, hatred in the ancient world. Unfortunately, that's something that we still see on evidence in the modern world today. And if you look behind that, you can see that the enemy of God is at work in that kind of anti-Semitic attitude, that Satan is at work in drawing the ire of people against the covenant people of God. In any case, the, this edict meant that the people who had established churches in Rome who were Jewish Christians... Yes, that's not an oxymoron. They were Messianic Jews. Jewish people who followed the Jewish law, but who also worshipped the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, were expelled. So the only people that were left in Rome that would still continue to be Christians were Gentiles. And so for something like five to ten years, those Roman house churches, which is how they probably met, they met in people's homes, were all Gentile. And then something had changed. Claudius, the, the emperor, had died. He might have been poisoned. And his successor, Nero, changed the law and said Jews can come back into Rome. And so at the time that Paul is writing to Rome, there is a kind of an ethnic crisis going on. There's a cross-cultural reunion happening, but it's creating some challenges because now you have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians trying to figure out how do we relate to each other and what do we understand God's purpose to be. So Rome's experience actually becomes a big part of why Paul is writing. He hasn't visited Rome yet, but he intends to. And when he does, he wants them to understand what he understands to be God's message to them and also what the call of God is upon them. Now, Rome is a place that's going to have a lot of influence on the rest of the empire because it's a capital city, it's a cosmopolitan place, and there's a lot of affluence in Rome. In other words, they have resource to give. In fact, Paul is writing at a time when he is preparing to go back to Jerusalem, the mother church, the center of Jewish Christianity in the ancient world, and he's writing to what could be called the center of Gentile Christianity in the ancient world in hopes that they will see that his mission of bringing an offering to the poor Jewish Christians of Jerusalem is something that they'd be willing to invest in. And in doing that, they really show that they believe in the unity that God calls us to, which is a message that Paul is always interested in. Paul also has a notion that he's going to come to Rome soon, and that beyond that he wants to go to Spain. And so he's writing in such a way that he's going to present them his gospel so that they can look at it and say, we want to endorse this, we want to support this, and we want to spread it. Now, what difference does that make to you and I? Because by the Holy Spirit, that letter has come to us. You say, well, we're not living in Rome. No, but are you living in a city where there's a lot of ethnic groups that have challenges collaborating and coordinating and recognizing unity? Are you living in an era where there's racial tension? Are you living at a time where your giving could be a way of showing how you believe in unity? How helping those with less 
out of the resource that you have could be a way of demonstrating your fidelity both to God and to the unity of faith? Also, how about the necessity of understanding the pure and powerful message of God's gospel in such a way that it can reach all people of every tribe and tongue? We live in a cosmopolitan city if you're living here in L.A., and there's many other cities like that. You may be watching from some rural or remote place, but I'll tell you, our world has grown smaller in the Internet era. We are all in a kind of globalized environment now. And so the message of the book of Romans, which is Paul's letter to these believers, is a message that has relevance for you and I today. And it has particular relevance in understanding the through line of God's story. In other words, why is there an Old Testament and a New Testament, right? An Old Covenant and a New Covenant. Does that mean that we just toss out the Hebrew Bible? Is the Old Testament something you never dip into? Are you just one that reads the New Testament words of Christ and that's enough for you? Listen, the words of Christ are priceless. But what Christ himself affirmed was that his words... Don't just begin in the Gospels. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And you really only know how powerful that statement is and exactly how broad his point is if you know the Old Testament. Because if you know the Old Covenant, you know that I am is the name of God. It is the covenantal name of God. When Moses encountered God, the angel of the Lord, in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and said, how will I tell anybody that I've encountered you? Because he encountered God the way Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Moses is saying, who shall I say is calling me? Who shall I say is sending me? And the Lord says, I am. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he's saying, I am God. And he affirms that everything of his teaching, that is Jesus, is in line with the law and the prophets. You've probably heard him say that before, right, in the Gospels. Well, what is the law? In the book of Romans, Paul talks about the law a lot, and we read it, but what does the word mean? The English word law that is in your Bible is a translation of the Greek word that Paul wrote because when Paul wrote this letter, he wrote it in Greek because that was the language of literacy at that time. That was the language that most people in the Eastern Empire were speaking. Or at least that was the language that if you were going to write a document that would be available to the most number of people, you would write it in Greek. Much the way that in a large part of the world now, English is like that. It's not a compliment to English or, or anything. At one time, French was like that. In, in South America, Spanish operates in that way, as well as in other parts of the world. So it's just a kind of a, a broadly available language. But he is also, in writing this Greek word nomos, translating a Hebrew idea or a Hebrew word Torah. And so the law actually is best understood if we go back to the source that Paul is appealing to, the Hebrew word Torah of the Old Testament. And what we find there is that there's a variety of ways that Torah can be described. In, in, in a broadest sense, Torah simply means the way of God. It is the guidance of God available. And to some degree, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, all of creation shows us the way of God. First of all, all of creation testifies that there is a God. I talked about that earlier, right? 
And even within our own hearts, we have a sense of conscience that indicates the Torah, the guidance of God. But there is also the special revelation of Torah, which is the specific words of God, and especially where in those first five books of the Bible, in the books of Moses, God gives covenant and commands. He makes, he makes connections with people. He encounters Abraham, says to Abraham, I want you to leave your homeland, because Abram was born in Ur, and, but God says to him, I want you to leave that place where you were born and where you're familiar, and I want you to cross the world, in a sense, cross this massive desert and come to a new place, the place of Canaan, a promised land. I'll be your God. I'll give you a son. Out of that son, I will create a generation and generations of people, a nation and nations. I will make you a father of nations. And I will also show you the way to go. I'll show you how to live, which is exactly what God does. He makes Abraham into a family, Isaac, Jacob, the sons of Jacob. Jacob's also called Israel. The sons of Israel become the tribes of Israel. And ultimately, one of those descendants, Moses, receives from God the commands, the Ten Commandments, the ways to live, the ways to be a people. And so the law becomes expressive of all those things. But what you recognize, hopefully, if you're tracking with me in this, is that at any given point, if I say the law, I could be meaning a lot of different things. I could be meaning the way, the way of God, God's nature and character. Or I could be speaking very specifically about don't eat shellfish, right? Which is one of the things that the Jewish people are told. So it's important that you and I recognize that the law has a lot of permutations. And so we need to consider one more word that begins with a C, which is context. In order to understand whether the law is referring to something very general or something very specific or what, we have to look at the context in which it's being referred to. Now, there's another thing that I mentioned in last week's teaching that I want to remind you of. I, I used the metaphor of bowling. And I said that when you're bowling, you're trying to reach a goal, which is to knock down the pins at the end of the lane or at the end of the aisle, but you've got gutters on either side. And the law really reveals the benefit of knowing where the gutters are, but not just so that you're caught up with the gutters, but so that you can know and see the goal, right? And so in this way, it helps us to think of the law kind of on an either-or balance, right? A sort of binary set of issues. On the one hand, you have the gutter of ignorance of the law. In other words, you can miss the goal of what God desires for you. And what God desires is covenant. What God desires is connection. What God desires is life. He wants you and me to be connected again to him. When we are connected to him, we are connected to life. And in him, we get connected to each other. And that life multiplies. It's a blessing. That's what God wants. But there's two ways that you can miss it. One is to not even know that you're disconnected, to not even know that you have a need, to not even know the law, to not even know the word, to not even know the Lord. And so that's a gutter. And if you fall into that rut, you miss the goal of life. It's not just that there's, there's a, a, a eternal damnation, which is how we classically describe that, but it's also that there is so much ignorance that costs so much and that is so unnecessary. So the law comes to reveal that gutter, to show you, 
Don't miss this connection. But what the law shows you, it cannot accomplish for you. In other words, it's like a diagnostic. If you go to the doctor and the doctor runs a test and the test says you have cancer, does the test cure you? No, right? Well, you say, well, I don't like that. The test told me that I have cancer and the result of having cancer is I'm going to die, but the test can't heal me. Well, forget the test. I don't want the test. I don't need the test. Guess what? That doesn't help you with the cancer, right? So the test is good even though the news is bad. Because if you don't know the bad news, you might be just happily going about your way, but you're still in the gutter. You still miss the goal. You're still going to die, and that's sin. So the law reveals sin, which is good news, but bad news. But even though it has shown you that, it can't heal you of it. So what do you do? We say, well, then I'll follow the law. I'll do everything that the law requires. I'll cure myself of cancer, but that's the other gutter. Because that's trying to fulfill the terms of the law in your own power. And the reality that the law reveals is your power isn't enough. You can't cure yourself. You need a greater physician. This is the grace of God that lives between the lines, that exists in the center place of balance. The law reveals our need, but only God can meet it. And so God shows us by his grace what he will do, which is to heal us and to make us whole. Now, I need to move quickly because I'm running out of time here. So I'm not going to go into, into depth about these remaining slides, except to remind you that when Paul is making his case about this message in the book of Romans, he is trying to, to engage in a dialogue with people that he's writing to, and he's not there with them. And so what he does is he supplies the responses, right? He supplies a dialogue. And the classic way of doing this in the ancient Greek rhetorical mode was what we call diatribe, which is to produce both sides of the argument. So Paul will make his point, and then he'll say, well, what about it? What does that mean? Does it mean this? Does it mean that? Should we say this? No, it doesn't mean that. No, that's a misunderstanding. But yes, clearly it means this. So Paul is doing both sides, right? He's speaking both sides. And in doing that, a lot of times he will present these dichotomies. Two things in balance. Think about those gutters on either side of the lane. Now, you and I might tend to think of them. Again, these slides are available online. And if you've been tracking with me, you've seen them over the last couple of weeks. We might tend to think that every time he puts a pair of things into opposition, into dichotomy, comparing them, that it's one is good and one is bad. And sometimes it is. But a lot of times, it's not necessarily that one is good or that one is bad, but that they are different. And so he's calling us to consider those differences and put them into a right balance. So we have to consider the context in which he offers them. For instance, Jewish believers and Gentile believers, it's not that one is good and one is bad. He's actually talking about how they can be unified, but they do have differences of background. What's the application for you and I? Whenever you and I are considering people groups or even individuals, everybody, whether as a group or as an individual, has their own experience has their own story. But also, God, who knows all of those experiences and all of those stories, often wants to help you and I to find where we connect, where we have things in common. And especially because what God desires to do in connecting, him, connecting us to him is connecting us with each other. 
So when Paul is talking about law and grace, don't think of it as one good and one bad, but think of it as different aspects of the way in which God is bringing us into balance with him. And yet there are times where Paul does compare good and bad. Sin is bad. Righteousness is good. So you have to be sensitive to what he's doing there. Okay, I'm going to skip past this and move us into chapter 4 because I want to look at the faith of Abraham. Now, in this chapter, Paul kind of gives us a progressive structure for how we can understand the faith of Abraham as a model for our faith. Paul is having established in the first three chapters a conversation about how everyone in the world has missed the mark. Everyone is in one of the gutters. Either there are people who do not know the law and have ignored it, know it and and ignore it, or don't know it and don't want to know it. People who don't want the test because they don't want the, they don't want the, uh, uh, the news. They don't want the diagnosis, but they're still subject to the death. Or people who know the diagnosis and know the news, but are trying to make themselves well in their own power. And so Paul has said, Jews and Gentiles, all people have gone astray. So where are we to look and how are we to receive? We are to look to God and we are to receive by faith. But now Paul is going to show how actually the scriptures and the testimony of God's covenant with people reveals this most particularly in the example of Abraham, who had faith in what God was doing. Faith in God, and specifically in God's purpose. And recognizing that God's purpose was about blessing, about forgiveness, pardon. Taking joy in that. And out of that joy, finding trust. You know, there's a passage in the Old Testament, in the book of Nehemiah, that says, The joy of the Lord will be your strength. The joy of the Lord is not just this giddiness of God. It's God's knowledge of his own goodness and of how he imparts that goodness to you and I through forgiveness. And so in that, we learn to trust and we gain strength from God, which is his life. It is life that overcomes every obstacle. It is life that goes beyond death. So that even if we die, we're not afraid. And we're going to die. But we will also live in him. That's God's promise. This is the faith of Abraham that can be yours and mine. Let me put it in simpler terms. God had a plan. He revealed it to Abraham. And Abraham believed. And it was accounted to him as righteousness. God had a plan and Abraham followed it. God has a plan For your life. Will you follow it? That's faith. Don't say you have faith and then not follow God's will. That's not faith. You say, well, I struggle to follow God's will. So did Abraham. Struggling is okay. In fact, struggling is to be expected. But disbelief, disinterest, is disconnection with God. Faith means following where God has called. And when you do, forgiveness becomes more than just a word. It becomes a way of life. It becomes an experience of grace. It becomes not only what you have received from God, 
but what you yourself extend to others. You start to live in the flow of forgiveness, which is a flow of thanksgiving. It is a flow of praise and worship, and it produces a flow of life and strength. That's where you can really begin to experience liberty and freedom from and in the Lord. But there is a process. It does take time. And it does require faith. God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to extend your line. And it's not just a promise, in in fact, to Abraham. It becomes a promise to you and I. Because the son that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, is the son through whom the whole nation of Israel came. And it is through the nation of Israel that Jesus came the Son of God, so that ultimately the Son that God is promising to Abraham is the Savior that you and I need. So that the promise that is made to Abraham is a promise to you. Now, if Abraham had not believed, I suppose that it is probably true that like what was spoken to Esther, if you were in our prayer meeting this Wednesday, I spoke on the purpose of Purim, that, that holiday that occurred this past week, and the story of Esther from the Old Testament. And you, I won't go into all the detail of that, but she was a Jewish woman who was a queen in the Persian nation at a time uh, when the Jewish people were facing persecution, and she was called upon to trust the Lord by faith. And someone said to her, if you don't trust the Lord, The Lord will raise up a savior for his people from somewhere else, but you will lose the benefit. But for such a time as this, you've been chosen. If Abraham hadn't trusted God, I suppose God could have raised up somebody else. But I know this, I am grateful to God for Abraham's faith. Because by Abraham trusting God, now I'm able to. So let me ask you this, who down the line from you will benefit from your faith? Because it's not just about you. When you receive a promise from God, it is never just about you. It is about you. God cares about you. You matter. But God cares about more than just you. And wants you to care about more than just you, too. We are so involved in ourselves, aren't we? Well, I'll speak for myself. I'm very involved in myself. God wants me to be involved in him. And he thinks about others. The more I focus on him, the more I care about others. And the more trust I have in the time that it takes for God to process through things in me. That's what God's promises are about. He makes a covenant to bring us along in him. Because ultimately, the fulfillment of the covenant is the revelation of God's promise and the reception of salvation. Now, I know I'm running out of time here, so give me just a few more minutes. Will you do that? You guys are stuck anyway. You online, don't go away. Come on, you haven't heard the best yet. The best is yet to come. God's got a plan for you. Do you want to know it? You want to follow it? You do. If you say, I don't want to know it because it might have some news that I don't want to hear, listen to me. You need to hear the diagnosis from the doctor in order for him to heal you. If you don't hear the diagnosis, it doesn't help you with the disease. But if you do hear the diagnosis, if you receive the guidance, you also receive the blessing. So Paul says, I've been telling you that the purpose of the law was to bring you into reliance upon God. 
But people in the Jewish tradition might say, well, Abraham is an example of how the law is fulfilled by rigorously fulfilling the law. So Paul says, let's take a look at that. Let's consider our father Abraham. Was he justified by his rigorous attention to doing all the works of the law? If he was, then I guess he could really boast and say, you know what? I saved myself. I healed myself. Sure, God gave me the prescription, but I'm the one that applied it. But in fact, Paul says, that's not what the word of God says. The word of God says that Abraham simply believed what God said. Abraham simply relied upon God to do it. It was in trust and faith that Abraham, listen, received righteousness. When it says credited to him as righteousness, literally understand it as this way. Righteousness was deposited into Abraham through faith. Because sometimes I think people think, well, why doesn't God just call me righteous? As if, it's like this, if I say to you, I give you a million dollars, is that worth a million dollars? No, I have to actually give you the million dollars, right? People will say, well, why doesn't God just call me righteous? Because righteousness means something. Because it has a real value. And so, for God to deposit righteousness into you means that there's a real response required of you. Now, the response is not the value. In other words, the response doesn't make it. You're not creating the million dollars by depositing it, but you are receiving it. You don't create righteousness through your faith. You simply receive righteousness through your faith. And in fact, Paul puts it this way. If Abraham is just earning God's righteousness, he's just collecting a wage. But If you receive something not because of what you've worked for, not as a result of your labor, but as a gift, that's the gift of God. That's the justification. And that's what we call faith and righteousness. And that produces in us thanksgiving. How grateful are you to the person who says, I want to write you the million dollar check, the $10 million check, and they've got the money to do it. How much more valuable is what God has written to you in the blood of his son and our savior, Jesus Christ? It causes us to give thanks. And so for a moment, Paul turns to a later person in the scriptures. It's not just Abraham, but how about the godly King David, through whom a son also comes? And also with David, as with Abraham, it's not just the immediate son of Isaac or Solomon, but the ultimate son, the son of man, the son of God, the Savior Jesus Christ. He is the one that is promised. Both Abraham and David, looking forward to him, have the same joy that you and I can have, looking backward to him, if you will, having now lived in the time when Jesus has come. So David in the Psalms, Psalm 32, says, Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are forgiven. Their sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. You see, when God forgives our sins, it's not just God erasing some mental thing that has no real value. In the same way that righteousness has a real value, sin has a real deficit. Or think of it again like cancer. You say, well, does the doctor just say, I erase your cancer? How about taking an MRI and just, you know, altering the scan? I erase it off the scan. It does nothing in the body, right? 
They have to irradiate those cells or go in and mechanically remove it through surgery. That's what God does in you and I, miraculously by his spirit. He eradicates sin. And David says, that one who is healed that way, who was broken before and now is made whole, gives glory to God. Because they know, I couldn't have done this for myself. I am dependent on God to heal me. I am dependent on God to save me. And therefore, I trust God to show me. Because I didn't even know that I had sin when God revealed it to me. I had no idea how to overcome it when God saved me from it. And so now, I may not know what to do next, but God will show me the signs. God will show me the way. So Paul says, okay, Abraham received a sign. It was a sign of an ongoing arrangement between him and God. God said, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make you a father of nations. Out of those nations, and particularly that people, I will give salvation to the world, and this will be the sign to you. And it might seem like a strange sign to you and I, and I haven't the time today to go into the detail of it, and maybe some of you are glad of it because it's a little bit of an uncomfortable subject, perhaps, but the sign is circumcision, the removing of foreskin from the male genitalia. Why would God choose such a sign? Suffice it to say that you can see at that point it is about a place of life and the transmission from generation to generation. It's also about a transformation, removing something of the flesh that does nothing for the reproduction of life, but it does come at a cost, and a very tender one, if I may say so. So God makes this the sign. I'll tell you one thing. It's a sign that certainly evidences Abraham's trust. I think everybody can relate to this. I know the guys can. If God comes to you and says, this is going to be the sign, if you're willing to say yes to that, you're willing to say yes to a lot, right? It's a pretty pointed request from God. But it comes with an even more powerful promise. It's the place where life is going to transmit. And so God says, I will bring life through you if you'll give your life to me. If you're willing to shed a little of your own blood, I'll shed all of my blood for you. If you're willing to put to death your flesh, I'll give you all of my life. But it's the sign of what God has already promised. And so the promise comes before the sign. And when was it that faith in the promise came? Before or after the sign? Paul says before. Therefore, the sign is not the power. The sign is not the point at which the power is coming from. The sign follows the promise, and it's the promise that has the power. Now, what's the application to you and I? The sign matters, and the sign is a part of a response. But what's most important to recognize, it's the promise of God that is the source. So you and I may think at times, we may get caught up in this way of thinking in which we think our, it's all about our response. And then when we fail in our response, we say, oh no, I'm in the gutter. But God comes with his grace to lift you up, to remind you, it was never the sign that was going to save you. It's the Savior who redeems you. I'm your Savior. I'm your God. To follow in the footsteps of Abraham is to be one who believes God's promise. And the promise is of a savior. It's not just life for you. It's life in him, everlasting. It wasn't through the law of 
the sign. It wasn't through the keeping of circumcision covenant and the keeping of kosher dietary laws. It is not for you and I in the keeping of every moral restriction that we receive the promise of God. That doesn't mean that we should live immoral lives. It means that the promise of God will enable us to be people who live according to the fullness of God's way and the fullness of his hope and the righteousness he imparts. If we're dependent upon the law, then when we fail the law, the promise is failed, unless the promise is worth even more. If the spirit of the law is even more important, if you will, than the letter of the law, if it's the spirit that fulfills the letter, then the promise comes by faith so that it can be by God's grace, so that it can be guaranteed by God's strength and not yours or mine. So that, in fact, our strength comes from him. Oh, what joy there is for us. This is how God made Abraham a father of many nations, because he is a father of faith. And so he believed, and he did not give up on that belief, even when the sun didn't come. Listen, I'm almost done, but I want to tell you this. Maybe you right now feel like you're almost done, because the promise that you thought from God has not come. Maybe you can relate to the idea that Abraham is going, my body is as good as dead. I'm 90 years old and I still don't have a son. My wife is 80 years old. What kind of baby is she going to have? But I believe. That's the faith of Abraham. You say it's too late. It is never too late with God. You say, I don't understand why I had to wait. There's a process. You don't need to understand it. You just need to trust the one who's in charge of it. You say, well, I don't know what comes next. But God does. All you need to know is him. All you need to believe is him. But you need to know his word. You need to trust his spirit. You need to have his son. His righteousness is credited to, is deposited in those who believe that his son, our Savior, rose from the dead. And if he can rise from the dead and empty his own grave, can't he empty yours? Can't he heal you and make you whole and make you right and righteous and show you the way and give you hope? and give you life, and set you free. Because if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You are free forever. You are free to fulfill the holiness of God and the righteousness of God, not by your strength, but by His, by His grace. The God who made you and has made promises with you and has made claims upon you is the very Christ who saves you. Let's pray as we conclude. Let's pray to that Christ that he would show us the place where we need to believe today. Lord Jesus, it's hard to walk by faith But then again, you know that. 
There's not a step we've had to walk that you didn't walk. You walked this tired earth. You know it's dusty trails. You also were subject to gravity and heat. You also stood under the rain and stood in the wind. You also went to funerals and burials. You saw the sick, but you healed them by faith. You saw the hungry, and you yourself needed food. You know what it is to be tired and weary. You know what it is to have to trust by faith. So you know what we know, but you know so much more. Lord, we desire to know what you know. More importantly than that, we desire to be like who you are. We want to be children of faith. Right now, Lord, we, we recognize there are things, there are sins, there are ways in which we've failed you, in which we've faltered in our walk, in which we have done wrong against you or towards others. And whenever we've done anything wrong towards others, we have, in fact, done it wrong against you. We thank you, Lord, that your promise to us is forgiveness. I pray that each one in this prayer right now would recognize and receive the revelation of forgiveness. That all of our sins, no matter how grievous they are, are covered by the blood that you shed from the cross. I pray that the freedom of that recognition and the power of that claim would truly wash over each and every one of us. And now, Lord, let us believe by faith and therefore receive in righteousness the fullness of your promise. We want to live and walk in you, Lord. Show us the way. Give us the strength. And we will give you the praise. If that's your prayer, then don't just say amen, but lift up an applause of thanksgiving to the Lord. Thankful to him who has forgiven you. Thankful to him who is righteous to save. I'm so glad you were able to join us today. Thank you for your patience in a service that went somewhat longer than our norm. But I believe there was a message here that was worth that time. I hope you feel the same. On Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Pacific, we'll be once again Zooming in our prayer me uh, midweek prayer meeting. And of course, I want to just remind you, every, uh, every Saturday morning at 9 a.m., we have a Tagalog service out on the patio in person. Just wear your mask and you can be a part of that. 10 a.m. right here in the sanctuary or online. May the Lord watch over you and may the Lord bless you with faith in these days, faith in this week, faith to receive, to believe, and to walk in the righteousness of the goodness and the glory and the grace of our God in his mighty name. Amen. God bless you, church.